what a terrible, 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 terrible message. And it's one that I use, you know, I've, I've grown a lot in my teaching. My first and second year, I was definitely like RoboCop teacher. Is that the kids for whom suspension is going to be an effective behavior modification tool, like I'm not going to do this thing because I'm going to get suspended, are already the kids who don't do those things yeah. because they don't want to get suspended, right? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal, and as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher working in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is All the Above, a show that brings you all the latest news and analysis of all things education, because we know mainstream media outlets don't give education the attention that it deserves. So we here at All of the Above are here to help you dive deep into what's going on in our world of education. Now, Jeff, did you know that a lot of folks are listening to this episode right now, some for the uh, first time? Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So so I've heard. Yeah. So, um, you know, shout out to all you listeners. And even though we appreciate you listening to the podcast version, um, do consider taking a moment to head over to our YouTube page. We're trying to get our subscriber number up. So if you go to YouTube.com slash all of the above, one word, you'll see us. And if you just hit that subscribe button, we'll very much appreciate it because we do offer video extras as well. And we don't want you to miss out on any of those. All right, Jeff, I am a teacher and I know that it's very important for me to start off each lesson with sort of a uh, overall objective or, mm. you know, essential question, if you will. But what, what are we learning today? Basically, that's what the kids want to know. Yeah. Okay. Well, like always, mm -hmm. um, you know, our our lesson plan is is well crafted. People of can course. people can see it right here. They can see I'm it. I'm sure. Indeed. Um, but uh, we we're gonna start off, of course, with our headlines uh, in today's do now. We have some fascinating stories, stuff that you're probably not gonna hear about in your regular news cycle. That you're is not true. gonna get a little alert on your phone about it. So we'll get into yeah. some of those juicy details, uh, and then for our main segment. Today, I'm really excited about this because this mm. this is a topic that um, you and I discuss a lot. Yeah. And a, a year ago, in season two, we did a, a whole episode on some topics related to this. So people talk a lot about the school to prison pipeline and about suspensions in school yep. and the connection between suspensions or reducing suspensions and addressing the school to prison pipeline. Uh, and states like our state here in California mm -hmm. are doing things like passing new uh, regulations around what schools can and cannot suspend kids for. Right. Um, but these policies are not without some controversy. Yeah. So we're going to spend some time digging into this issue today, and uh, we're going to get a little uh, a little Shakespearean for everyone with the question, to suspend or not mm. to suspend, mm. <laughs> Manuel. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna unpack that for folks today. Should be should be a lot of fun. Nice. That was that was poetic. Extra points for that. Extra right. points for that. <laughs> what else are you gonna hear? Shakespeare getting dropped on your yeah. educational uh, news coverage. You're not. You're yeah, not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, uh, up next is our Do Now segment where we take a look at recent headlines in education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, 
time for the Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, uh, we are approaching the end of the semester here. Uh, and I think that means it's time for a report card. Great check again. Yeah, man. If I do remember correctly, the last time we had a report card, it was a lot of um, negative grades. We had... we. We had some D's and F's. <laughs> we had was, a lot that we had was, to work on. It was not a strong showing. It was not. Uh, let's let's be honest. But we were trending upward. I, th- I think that is we, true. Uh, yeah, we were. I think we got to yeah. like like D plus maybe. All right. Let's yeah. see what we got today. <laughs> First grade for today's do now is a C. Mm, see progress. Progress. There we go. All right. This C is a C as in canceled, mm. which is what will happen to the. SAT and the ACT as exams required for admission to the University of California school system if this threat from civil rights organizations comes into effect. So a coalition of organizations recently announced that it would file suit against the University of California system if it does not drop the use of college admissions tests as a freshman application requirement. This reflects criticism from several civil rights organizations that tests such as the ACT and the SAT are biased against low-income Black and Latinx students. The threat to sue comes as a faculty committee of the 10-campus UC system is conducting a study about what, if anything, to do about the SAT or ACT as a requirement for admission. A recommendation to either continue to use the tests, to drop them altogether, or to seek changes to the test is expected to be released by the spring of 2020. However, Mark Rosenbaum, a directing attorney at Public Counsel, the Los Angeles-based public interest law firm working on the possible anti-test litigation, says that keeping the testing mandate, quote, is not just bad policy, it is a matter of right and wrong. So, Jeff, this coalition wants these tests to be canceled. What do you think about this? Yeah, so I think what I'm going to say is something that I'm I'm a little bit hesitant to say only mm-hmm. because uh, the list of organizations that are that are leading the cause here and there are many but uh, but a few that are just cited here are some of the like coolest equity justice driven organizations in LA and in uh, California period. So, I do want to say organizations like Public Council, like Community Coalition, um, like College Access Plan, um, among many others, right, yeah. are, are doing lots of great work. Um, and so typically I find myself agreeing with most, if not all, of what they're doing. But I, I think I, I disagree uh, that this is a good policy. And, and here's why. So I think this this attack is coming from a very good place, right? Mm-hmm. Saying that um, in order for us to get to a more just outcome, a fair admissions process that uh, considers um, the strengths that all students are bringing to the table right. uh, equally, uh, that standardized tests uh, and the tests they're naming in particular, the SAT and the ACT, uh, prevent that from happening. So I uh, I think okay, let's have that conversation, mm-hmm. right? But I think um, the idea that we're going to get rid of the SAT and the ACT and now all of a sudden um, it, th- there's going to be this like beautifully um, representative picture of uh, the student body of the state of California at UC Berkeley, at UCLA, at UC San Diego. 
I think is just is not true. I think we're we're kidding ourselves that in actuality, what these institutions are is very elite institutions. They're institutions yeah. that work with the top five, top ten percent of students across the state of California, right? right. And so whatever replaces the use of these tests as the arbiter of what that success looks like is not going to just all of a sudden be some like magically uh, diversifying thing, right? So I think that to me is, a, is an issue. Like what's the real problem we're trying to solve and will this solve it? I have real questions about that. I also think at the end of the day, standardized tests from my perspective have a very important role to play in education. If you want to make the, the case that this test has problems or this test is the wrong test, mm -hmm. um, that's fine. But trying to say we're going to fairly assess two kids, you know, a kid from Bakersfield and a kid from, uh, you know, from Los Angeles at, who go to very different types of schools and very different communities, very different contexts. Right. Right. We need some common assessment to tell us how are they, how are they doing in terms of academic skills and readiness um, that gives some way to compare across those two sites. GPA is helpful, but certainly a highly imperfect measure unto itself, as we just talked about uh, yeah, <laughs> on our, yeah, uh, this season. So... So those are just a few reasons. I'm I'm 100% certain we disagree on this. So you let, are tell, correct. Tell me why I'm wrong, Manuel. You clearly have been listening to some all of the above, <laughs> as uh, the hosts of that wonderful show have discussed um, the SAT and College Board at length uh, several times. Yeah. Um, so what I'm hearing is that you are opposed to the work being done by these equity organizations. I just want to go on record saying that you are on the that's other side. What you, what that, you, that's pretty much what, what I just basically over there. basic summary. No, I, I, I obviously that's. Not not um, what you're saying. Um, if we know that the stronger predictor of college success is income and parents' education level, they, these exams to me are just another gatekeeping mechanism, period. And I think about uh, some students I had a conversation with uh, recently. So, you know, it was one of the testing days for the SAT and I asked students about it and it was clear that they had very little preparation. Our school does the best it can. Of course, every, all of our students take the PSAT uh, like a lot of districts do. And we have after school programs, uh, college access program does a lot of work to help our students get prepared. But the fact of the matter is a lot of them are simply in the dark about this exam and how these exams work and how to prepare for the exams. And then on the way to work, I pass by in my neighborhood where I live, which is not the same neighborhood I work in, I pass by one of those private tutoring spots where you could pay and your child could get expert tutoring for success on the SAT or the ACT. And it just is a reminder to me that so much of this can be gamed through strategy, through having the privilege of paying for extra support, having the privilege of having parents who already went to college and who are preparing for these tests or instilling um, in you the importance of these tests and the importance of uh, eating a solid breakfast that morning before you go in and test and all these things. Um, so there, it's just so fraught with problems. And we had a pretty lengthy debate about the college board's attempt to have a, I think they were calling it an adversity index or adversity yeah. score or something mm -hmm. like that. Adversity and we had a pretty index. good uh, debate about them trying to measure um, the extent to which a student had to overcome challenges at home or in their neighborhood or whatever. And to me, that's just another reminder that this test has been tinkered with so many times because it's fraught with so many problems. And for the college board, I mean, the spokesperson said it was overhauled in 2016. Okay, like how many decades of people were taking a test that admittedly wasn't a good test, which is why they overhauled it in 2016. And when, how long to the next overhaul? And we keep tinkering with something that simply isn't the best measure, in my opinion, of college readiness and success. And as a gatekeeping mechanism, we know 
it's doing more to block low income and black and Latinx students than it is to block higher income privileged students. So just throw the whole thing out. That's my take. Yeah. So I understand where that where that takes uh, that take comes from. I think what I would say is that. Uh, the, the first point I made to me is the is the one I would kind of offer up, which is like, OK, so we get rid of SAT and ACT. It's not like they're just opening the doors at Berkeley now and everyone true. who wants oh, to vote can come in. Totally right? true. So yeah. the the mechanism that operates in the admissions process, which says Berkeley is a highly selective institution, mm -hmm. only the top slice of students in the state are going to get in. Right. Who's that top slice of students? Right. That's still going to function. So the criteria is just going to shift from the from partially being about these assessments to being about other things. And I think the same kinds of income driven inequities that you just named. Right. Who's got access to private tutoring and, you know, right. uh, summer enrichment and all these kind of things that like better set you up to perform in this test is also true of grades is also true of you know, exposure to AP courses and lots of lots of true. things, right, that make a person um, competitive in the application process. So to me, that's where I'm like, I don't think that this is going to be some like silver bullet for us. I think it's a I appreciate the, the reasoning behind the effort. I actually don't see it getting us to the place we want to get to, yeah. um, particularly given the policies that are in place around affirmative action uh, right now, which in my mind is actually the like maybe the better battleground to attack. Right. And I realize with, you know, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the court, like, we, you know, there's Maybe our grandkids will see some movement on that some, someday. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, it feels like a really well-intentioned effort. It feels like, to me, even if it succeeds, it's not going to produce the outcomes that we want. Yeah. And in the meanwhile, um, perversely so, perhaps, mm -hmm. what the SAT and the ACT do provide is clear... Uh, like clear definition of what you know criteria is right instead of like subjectivity of uh, a totally subjective admissions process right? right like I could very well see this turning into admissions offices being like well you know these parts of the state we know or these schools we know and they mm -hmm. produce lots of highly competitive students who are ready to succeed here right, right. so we're going to intentionally or unintentionally favor those students right who are going to wind up being wealthier whiter, yeah. um, you know, or in, in California's case, wealthier white and Asian students, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so I worry about the, like, the system of racial sorting just carrying on with a new metric, right? Like, that, yeah. I hear you. Yeah, and I definitely don't think getting rid of these exams is obviously going to, you know, transform college access in any kind of way, but it is uh, an important step, I think. And I also think this is a big enough topic that we've landed on enough times <laughs> that it for sure is deserving yeah. of a deep dive seminar segment. One of the organizations that is also in support of and on the forefront of um, trying to, to get rid of these, exam these exams as an entrance requirement or application requirement for freshmen is Ed Trust West. And um, I, I, I think I might know some people at Ed Trust West and maybe somebody will be willing to come on the show and uh, give us a little bit more information. And uh, I'm pretty sure somebody affiliated with the college board or somebody who works in admissions and really uh, relies on these tests would be willing to come on and speak about um, the, the, the admissions side of it and the importance of these tests until something better is created. Uh, so I think this is something we're going to have to come back to 
hopefully sooner rather than later. Agreed. Agreed. I will. Can I just close and say uh, it's gangster, though, that the state of California in its or the, the University of California in yeah. its discussions was plausibly talking about maybe we'll just change the SAT and yeah, the ACT. Yeah. I'm like, who gets to sit around and just be I like, mean, maybe we'll just yeah. have them change the test. That is uh, gangster. I, I can't imagine that the regents of the University of Wyoming are sitting around like, maybe oh, we'll just not. have the college board change the SAT. Right. So, uh, you know, yeah, you some, see? someday I want to make power moves like, maybe they'll just change the test. That, that's a, yeah, yeah. That, is, that is a power move. I mean, you know, UCLA, more often than not has more applicants than any other university you know yeah. so they're just taking one campus as a whole and think about how many people are taking these exams yeah. hoping to get into ucla like the uc got weight man over here in california man seriously Woo. all right we have other grades to get to um we we're we we're on that c for a while uh let's see what's our next grade jeff all right man well uh next grade uh is a b nice this ain't looking bad i know b for beautiful Hey, is this another story don't, about your favorite, teacher, favorite teacher? Or? I was going to say both of us, but you well, that, know. That too, uh, that works. <laughs> B for beautiful, it sounds great, right? Yeah. Yes, uh, except beautiful in the sense that uh, a recent study coming out of the UK uh, from the National Bureau of Economic Research finds that good-looking students do better in school than their less striking peers. Well, wow. so may so beautiful and maybe not so beautiful. Uh, so uh, researchers Daniel S. Hammermesh and uh, Rachel Gordon and Robert uh, Crosno found that people whose looks are one standard deviation above average attain nearly five more months of schooling than an otherwise identical average-looking individual. Now, uh, if you're like me and you just heard that language and you're like, well, who gets to decide who's good-looking and who's average-looking? Right. That's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. And uh, what happened is... Uh, the study used a panel of undergraduate students who looked at video of mm. students being uh, taught in class and gave them a ranking from one to five. One being not so attractive and five being really attractive. Um, and That sounds uh, mean, man. It sounds mean, highly subjective, but right. also maybe interesting for us to think about. Yeah. So, uh, Manuel, uh, you know, what's going on here? Beautiful. Yeah. The good-looking kids are getting better education than the bad-looking kids? Yeah, that's it, make, it reminds me of two things. Number one, it reminds me that Facebook started as a site to rate um, Zuckerberg's classmates and their attractiveness. And we need to remember that because Facebook is out there um, really threatening our democracy, in my personal opinion. I know this podcast isn't about that, but this whole rating thing, it's, it's mean to rate people based on their looks. And that just reminds me of like... Mm when Facebook started. Anyways, I digress. Uh, it also reminds me of a story I remember seeing on 2020. I was one of those nerdy kids who watched 2020 on Friday nights when I was like in middle school. And I remember there being a story about kids rating their teachers. And I remember they set up cameras in a kindergarten classroom and had different teachers come in and out. And the teachers were saying the same thing and doing the same thing. And then they would ask the kids like, what teacher did you like more? And, and the kids mm. were, were gravitating towards a more attractive teacher saying things like, oh yeah, she was just nicer. And then the video shows that they're actually saying the same thing in the same tone that the more attractive, conventionally attractive uh, teacher wasn't nicer. It's mm. just, you know, anyways, those are little kids. That, the, so this story reminds me of that. I don't remember when that story came out and, uh, you know, if somebody is listening, um, maybe that's familiar to you too. But yeah, it's not a shocker to me. I think there's been a lot of, I've seen plenty of um, research that shows that 
more attractive people or taller people or conventionally good looking people get hired more and get paid more and all these things. So to learn that they're doing better in school isn't totally shocking to me because I think there is an inherent bias in everybody, really. What was interesting to me is that the researchers didn't um, come up with a real reason for this this um, improvement in educational outcomes or educational achievement for better looking folks, but they did note that perhaps some of the less attractive kids were also bullied and they found that the less attractive kids were more likely to have behavior problems. So maybe that speaks to just the overall schooling experience or life experience of somebody who is conventionally attractive and people being nicer to you and feeling better about you and versus folks who are less conventionally attractive, I suppose, and people not being as warm to you and the impact that that might have on your um, behaviors um, or interactions with others. Um, it's really disheartening though. I mean, obviously it's really disheartening to think that a, a kid's looks, like just simple attractiveness might have this big of an impact. I mean, we're talking um, five more months of schooling. Like that's, that's a chunky amount. That's foul, man. Yeah, like, man. It's, there's something about this story that just makes me go like, oh, man, like that's yeah. that's messed up. That's wrong. Now, and that's just on the surface level on its face. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a very strong suspicion about, mm -hmm. how, about how to actually explain this data, which I am not going to say I have, you know, an evidentiary base for and okay. I know the truth here. What I am saying is, the, the places that are so highly subjective in this study, I'm not disagreeing, like it, it makes sense to me intuitively right. that this type of bias towards other individuals we find to be attractive. And I, and I think it's also important to note here, especially given that we're talking about teachers and students, we're not necessarily talking about sexual attraction. We are right. talking about general attractiveness in the right. way that, you know, you might think about your aunt or your uncle yeah, yeah. or something, right? Um, but like good looking or like you don't have such a good reaction when you look at them. Uh, that, that type of bias would play out in all sorts of like um, implicit ways in classroom behavior and instruction, right? And right. discipline and all kinds of stuff. And on the other hand, we have lots of information to suggest that people's perceptions about attractiveness are very closely tied to race. Right. And also very closely tied to, with class. So I can imagine uh, that a lot of this just further reinforces the larger oppressive uh, forces that play out in school and in communities uh, for black and brown kids yeah. and uh, for, for low-income folks, right? Um, so if you're coming to school and you're not able to have like the nice hairdo and right, or whatever, right. right? Your clothes are a little dirty, right? Like that that's reinforcing what's found yeah. in this story. Or if you're, um, you know, if you're a black girl or boy and the conventional, um, you know, magazine Hollywood culture tells you that the, you know, the, ki the, uh, the person with long straight hair is the standard bearer of beauty mm. and you're not that. Uh, then how is that type of conditioning that we experience uh, in our society playing out not only in just like the all the other negative ways that we talk about, but in the very experience you're having as a learner in classroom, uh, in the classroom, which is uh, just sad, man. Yeah. Like, just can't catch a break. Can't. This grade was a B for beauty, but it's a legitimate F. Yeah, nice. like, <laughs> it's like just, a B slash, slash F minus. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right.
One last grade for this do now. And we have a, uh, a P for pass. According to a story by Bracey Harris for the Heckinger Report, aspiring educators in Mississippi will soon take a revised certification exam that school leaders hope will make it easier for prospective teachers to pass and enter the classroom. The new version of the Praxis Core places less emphasis on algebra and geometry and provides a formula sheet for advanced equations. The Educational Testing Service, which administers the test, rolled out the changes last month. The Heckinger Report, in collaboration with Mississippi Today, recently looked at the state's teacher shortage and explored how some teacher candidates struggle to pass the exam, failing despite multiple attempts. So school leaders hope that changes to the test will help communities facing teacher shortages fill those vacancies. So Jeff, what do you think about this idea of uh, making adjustments to the math section of a certification exam to help get more teachers in the classroom? Yeah, uh, I don't I don't feel very positively. You about don't sound it. very positive. Uh, about it. I don't. I don't. It just. Uh, OK, so zooming out for a moment mm -hmm. as educator, as a career educator and as educators, one of the things that frustrates me most about our profession mm -hmm. is the extent to which I feel like we do not comport ourselves amongst ourselves as professionals nearly as consistently as we should. There are plenty of very highly functional professional spaces in our field, and I've worked with amazing people in all kinds of places, right. so that's not, that's stipulated here. But I'm saying there's way too many places where we have folks that just behave unprofessionally and uh, don't hold ourselves to a high enough standard. And uh, I worry that this is like institutionalizing some mm -hmm. aspect of that, right? So I get why the state of Mississippi, which like many states around the country is experiencing a teacher shortage, which we've talked about multiple times on the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, no emergency here, just a five alarm fire uh, <laughs> burning in the background about how we don't have enough people entering the teaching profession um, and have long-term subs all over the place and districts yeah. that are you know, cutting positions and having 60 kids in a class because they can't find enough teachers, right? Mississippi is certainly a state that's highly impacted in this regard. Mississippi is one of the few places in the country that was unique enough to have a rural Teach for America uh, location, right? Yeah. Um, folks who know a bit about Teach for America know that they have historically placed most of their fellows in, um, you know, in bigger cities, right? In New York and LA and Chicago and places like that. Um, but they do place some folks in more rural residencies, including the Mississippi Delta, right? Mm -hmm. They're like conditions were so poor in that area uh, and so mismanaged by the state um, that, you know, some deeper intervention was needed, right? In order just to fill the positions. Okay. So I get that they are burdened by this need and therefore might look at this equation and say, we need to make it easier to enter the profession. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, especially, uh, with elementary educators, which uh, I think is the, the larger group that this yeah, policy this change on, would yeah. be impacting, um, we have a huge problem in our profession with elementary educators not knowing enough about math, but then being charged with teaching math, right? And what they're talking about is uh, reducing the, the level of difficulty of the math section of the exam, right? And when these are the very people who are going to be in charge of helping young people develop their foundational conceptual math skills and then succeed themselves on 
yeah. standardized tests in math, right? Uh, and that feels to me like uh, like a um, solution where we're like actually undercutting mm -hmm. ourselves right. for the success we hope to achieve someday. Um, so I, it, it just frustrates me uh, in that regard because I, I feel like I want our profession to have high standards for entry like every other profession does. Right. Yeah, no, I hear that. Um, I do want to say you sound very uh, pro-test in this particular episode. Why, why are you trying to do me like I'm just, that? I'm just, pointing, I'm just I, pointing it out. I'm, I'm, not, the, I'm not saying that's I'm, good or bad. It's just I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> um, but but I, I agree with you um, to the extent that I, I understand the context here in terms of what they're doing with the, the algebra and geometry. So it sounds like they're making it less of a or, or smaller percentage of your overall score, and they're including formulas in the test so you don't have to have these formulas memorized. Um, at first, when I when I heard about the story, I was thinking like, oh, actually, that's it might be a good thing because I'm thinking, you know, um, I was just kind of assuming the math on the test was like really, really advanced. And, you know, if you are teaching algebra, um, maybe for the certification exam to have calculus, maybe there's some discussion about whether or not that's needed if you for sure are teaching, you know, middle school algebra or something like that. And then I saw that this was algebra and geometry, which I feel like if you're going to teach children any bit of mathematics, you should be solid in algebra and geometry. I think those are, you know, I'm not a math teacher, I'm a history teacher, but algebra and geometry and we're talking about should be basic. basic. Yeah. We're talking about basic algebra and geometry. Like one of the yeah. examples they cited was around calculating the area of different types of shapes yeah, right? and providing the formula for that. And I feel like it's not too much to ask a teacher to know yeah. the formula for calculating the area of a triangle or the I area agree. of a yeah. rectangle. Like yeah. if you can't do that, you probably shouldn't be in the profession yet. Right. If you need to relearn those skills or learn them for the first time, fantastic. That's what colleges yeah. and training programs are for. You don't hear about the the bar association or whoever controls the the bar exam in each right. state. I assume it's the bar association making the bar easier. Uh, you know, right. um, like you know, they hold a but high standard. But there also isn't a lawyer shortage. I mean, maybe it depends, depends who you think. ask. But that, I mean, that, so I get it. And yeah. you're right. And that's, that is an important point. Like I'm over here on my high horse and I'm. Yeah, your horse my, is like I've really my, high, really tall. I've got my feelings. Right about now. And yeah. I can imagine being a, like a, an administrator of right. the state in Mississippi and being like, we have 600 vacancies to fill and how are we going to yeah. ensure this, right? Yeah. So I do get that. I just think it's sad. This also reminds me of when I was student teaching. There was an a interim superintendent in the district that um, I was student teaching at and um, news hit that he hadn't passed whatever basic certifi teaching certification exam um, was required. And this isn't, you know, it, so in California, there's like the CBES, which is the, the basic test that you need to even be a substitute teacher. And then there's the single subject test or, or other exams if you're uh, going to be able to mention, but the CBES is like the real basic one. So whatever the, the basic one was um, in the state that I was student teaching at, um, he couldn't pass the, the English portion. So it was kind of like, you know, all the teachers and folks around the community were like poking fun at it. And he was explaining that English not being his first language, um, he, he struggled and he was, he was basically using it to, to emphasize the importance of understanding that there are, are multiple modes, not just of learning, but of, of, of expressing what you have learned. And that particular test wasn't set up in such a way that um, worked for him the first time around. He passed it the second time around. But this story reminded me of that, this idea that, you know, we, we 
As educators, we remind ourselves and remind students that there are multiple ways to measure learning and to express, or hopefully we remind, maybe we don't remind students enough, but there's multiple ways to show what you know, that it's not all about a test. However, in this particular case, like algebra and geometry, I don't know, man. I yeah, that's. I think I agree with you. It's a bad look. You it's should, a bad look. Yeah, it's a you bad should know look, that. right? You it's know, a bad look. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I, you know, if we wanted to get more into the like, the the test is not the right way to measure. Okay, then right. let's have some other like performance assessment to show yeah. that they can effectively teach these things. Yeah. But I'm I'm I would bet the house on the fact that like if you can't do the math that's in that assessment, you're not going to be able to effectively teach. Yeah, the, the math in the classroom, right? So like, I, student basically asks you how how do you well, how do you figure out the area of a triangle again, and you you know go back to your your text on your teacher desk and have to look up the formula and come back. Right. To, that's or a, if you that's just, a bad look. Yeah, like, it's not on. a good look. Yeah. it's not a good look. Um, there is conversation to be had about the barriers to entering the profession, um, but this I don't think is is where that conversation needs to be because algebra and geometry, folks. Yeah, man. We need talent. We need great people coming into teaching. Yeah. And, you know, if it takes you multiple attempts, that's fine. But we do need some yeah. threshold of excellence to, to bring folks in, man. This work yeah. is important. All right, folks, that does it for today's Do Now. Uh, if you haven't already, please make sure you hit that subscribe or follow. And if you are listening to the podcast, if you may take a moment when you're not in the middle of driving to... Uh, Go over to your podcast playing application, whether it be Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, and uh, drop a quick little rating. Five stars are very much appreciated. All right. Next up, seminar segment about suspensions. To suspend or not to suspend? That, that is, the, is question. the question. Nice. Nice. <laughs>All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar segment. And we'll take some time during today's seminar to discuss suspensions and the overall essential poetic question of to suspend or not to suspend. So, Jeff, let's start with this terminology, school-to-prison pipeline. I think yeah. a lot of people have heard it. A lot of people use that phrase. Uh, help us out with that. What does that mean and, and where's that from? Yeah, so uh, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. And so for the sake of making sure we're all on the same page, mm -hmm. we'll offer a little little kind of uh, explanation for folks. So when we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, we're basically talking about a set of policies, a set of practices, and a set of conditions present in schools, uh, many schools across the country, um, that have put into place systems whereby students are pretty aggressively marginalized from school via suspension, right? So we see lots of kids who are potentially even for very small infractions, you know, um, having scissors in their hand when they were angry or, you know, just breaking some general school rule being suspended and there being, uh, you know, very little recourse for them to kind of earn their way out of that suspension, right? Um, and this is not only potentially just problematic on its face, but also has drawn a lot of attention from folks because it has uh, followed a similar arc to our larger nationwide issue around mass incarceration. So as we saw in kind of the early 70s um, through the, the present day, 
um, this kind of uh, meteoric rise in the number of people of the, in the United States who are incarcerated. We also saw, although not nearly as, as steeply, but significantly um, increases in the numbers of suspensions uh, happening in schools across the country, right? So the kind of, um, you know, war on drugs, uh, you know, 1994 crime bill kind of thinking in the public sphere. Um, there was sort of a mirroring set of policies in schools that were like zero tolerance. Uh, you know, if you do this, you get suspended, that's it. Um, and, uh, and that also, similarly to our problems with mass incarceration, saw a lot of the same people being uh, incarcerated over and over again and same people being suspended over and over again, right? Um, and so it's drawn a lot of attention because uh, that this set of policies around the school-to-prison pipeline has also involved hiring lots of police to work in schools, right, and having sort of mirroring attitudes and behaviors to... Uh, some of the things people find very problematic with policing in the larger society. Yeah. Yeah. So um, thank you for laying that out. And um, in terms of why are so many groups out there doing the really good work of trying to dismantle this school to prison pipeline and dismantle um, the system that is is helping so helping get so many young people uh, caught up in the legal system and on the path towards incarceration. Um, you know, if you're listening to this episode or watching our watching our show, uh, you're well aware of the the data uh, the data that supports this idea that more marginalized groups are disproportionately suspended, disproportionately expelled, disproportionately um, excluded from the learning environment, going all the way back to to kindergarten. And we we've reported on the show several times uh, stories coming out uh, about preschoolers being suspended, <coughs> kindergartners being suspended, and all the research shows that black students in particular, black males in particular, uh, students with IEPs, foster youth are more likely to be suspended for infractions that other students do and don't get suspended for. And it goes back to this notion of if you just picture a, a school resource officer walking down the hallway and, and patting a white kid on the head and, hey, what's going on, Jimmy? And then seeing a black student and saying, I got my... Why does it got to be Jimmy? I don't know, it's his first name, first name that came to mind. I know a lot of black Jimmys. Uh, and um, seeing a black student and, you know, I got my eye on you. So that that immediate yeah. like white kid acting up just immature whatever kid boys will be boys type of attitude rough and tumble whereas when it's a black student i got my eye on you and that disproportionate attention on marginalized groups is one of the reasons why it's so important to talk about suspensions and talk about expulsions because time and again i mean somebody as early as you know a preschooler kindergarten we talked about the girl in florida six-year-old girl who was handcuffed um, and arrested, um, that sends a message very early on that prison is in your future and this is how it's gonna go. And um, that's, that's a problem. That's, that's something that obviously has to be addressed. So as a classroom teacher, when it comes to a student um, who maybe has done something, some kind of infraction, there's always in my mind this idea of like, I for sure don't wanna send the student out to the office or whatever and add to their discipline record because I know how negative of a um, outcome that has on educational, future educational outcomes and attainment. Um, so Jeff, what are some of the things that folks are considering and working towards in terms of what to do about this, this habit and tradition in American schools of zero tolerance, suspend them, 
send him home. Yeah. So I think there's actually a lot of really good news on this front, which doesn't mean there's not a lot of really big meaty questions to, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. still grapple with uh, and answer like, to suspend or not to suspend, yeah. mm -hmm. that is the question. Um, but but I think the really good news is that, uh, you know, unlike, say, the, the police and society in general, where, uh, you know, here in the United States, we tend to have a little more of like a laissez-faire type of attitude about like, well, if it works for some people, then great. And if it doesn't for other people, you should have worked harder. Um, yeah. In school, we tend to have sort of a different social dynamic set up, right? Where like mm. it is the school and the, you know, the principal and the teacher's responsibility to ensure the success and support the success of all students. Right. Right. And even after they mess up or make a mistake or cause some harm to someone else in the in the school or in the community. So there's there's almost this kind of um, institutional bend uh, towards being receptive to ideas that are perhaps different than we'll just suspend them and push them out and ostracize them, right. um, which is the way that like incarceration works in our yeah. society. Right. We'll lock them up somewhere upstate and throw away the key and, and so be it, right? Um, school kind of by default works a little bit differently. Now, we've also had a huge amount of like really powerful grassroots uh, <laughs> advocacy, um, politicians who've jumped on board, parents, kids across the country in, in districts and schools pushing hard on this. I want to make sure I don't just, yeah. um, you know, uh, forget to give them uh, credit. But we've seen a lot of movement on the policy front um, to, to, to literally change policies that create uh, conditions that will reduce the level of suspensions or that will require alternatives to suspensions and sort of raise the threshold for when a suspension <clears throat> excuse me, could be used, right? So an example um, here uh, in California that um, is relatively new is uh, California has uh, eliminated the use of the willful defiance uh, violation as a justification for suspension, right? Now, some districts like uh, Los Angeles Unified mm -hmm. um, had already uh, taken that step. So this was not... Um, you know, uh, just sudden for every part of the state, but certainly is a, dr a pretty dramatic step at saying, uh, you know, we're, we're going to try to eliminate this area that tends to be very gray, right? Like, you know, student, it could be everything from like, I'm trying to start a riot up in here to yeah. like, I just didn't listen to you when you told me come over here yeah. Uh, yeah. that could trigger a suspension, right? right? So like pretty wide, very subjective, brings into account all kinds of like, biases, racial, gender, right. and otherwise, right, um, that, a, that a person can have in those situations and tries to remove some of that from the equation. Um, so that's a really interesting policy. Uh, Los Angeles Unified also um, very recently uh, adopted a plan to get rid of random uh, wanding or metal detector searching of students in their secondary schools, which is going to go into effect next year. Um, and uh, the largest school district in the country, New York, uh, so the New York City Department of Ed, um, has recently set limits on um, the maximum length 
for superintendent suspensions, which are the really long suspensions mm -hmm. for severe infractions in New York um, that used to go up to 180 days. Um, I think now the new maximum is um, is going to be 20 days, if I'm, I'm mm -hmm. correct. I might have to, fact checkers might have to get us on that, but a dramatic reduction, right? So um, so there's policies like this coming into place that give us, I think, some, some real hope to yeah. say, like, we're trying to fix this problem. And nationwide, we're also seeing significant reductions in suspension that far outpace the very minor reductions we're seeing in incarceration rates nationally. Yeah. So some good news on that front, I think. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and you know, other schools and districts have, have followed those steps and also done other things like, you know, there's certain districts. Um, I think LA used to be one of them, I could be wrong on that, um, that used to file police reports for student fights on campus, like something as basic as two students getting in a fight and having a, a police write-up or uh, police citations for uh, truancy for not for ditching school basically and things like that. Um, different districts have 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 worked to step back from involving the police as much as the police had been involved um, in the 80s and 90s during this era of like mass incarceration being sort of the just the go-to in schools mirroring that uh, that national trend. Um, I remember as a teacher my first year one of the the first bits of advice that I got from teachers um, that were working around me was the particular ed code to write on the discipline referral to suspend a student from my class for two days. So as a teacher, you have the leeway of using willful defiance to suspend a student automatically from your class for two days for defying you, um, no questions asked. And I remember a teacher like telling me, yeah, you write that on a referral, boom, you don't have to see the kid for two days. I remember that being on a post-it near my desk somewhere and what a terrible, 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 terrible message. And it's one that I use, you know. I've, I've grown a lot in my teaching. My first and second year, I was definitely like RoboCop teacher. And I, I think my students have mostly positive experiences, but I do remember writing down the ed code on discipline referrals for things like not handing over your phone when I asked for you to, you know, hand over your phone or whatever. And um, I tried my best to wean myself off of reaching for that discipline referral because we all know that doesn't actually solve anything. Eventually that kid comes back to your room, whether it be two days, three days, whatever. And whatever lack of relationship exists there, whatever is, is causing the, the infractions, the first, like it's still going to be there. And that's one problem with suspensions, right? You get day off of school, two days off of school, whatever, and then you come back and has anything really changed? Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm one who, who used that early on, like a lot of teachers do. And early on, I, I saw that, okay, this definitely, and then never felt right using that. Um, and I weaned myself off of it. But there are plenty of teachers out there mm. still under these new restrictions who still reach for the exclusion as like the go-to student coming in late, teacher being frustrated, this is the third time this week you've come in late, whatever, whatever, the student not being receptive enough to the teacher saying that, you know, you can't do this, and the teacher seeing that as attitude, and okay, you're here, you just wanna start stuff today, not today, I'm not having it today, you know, go to so-and-so's office, whatever. Too many teachers out there that do that. But then there's the, the reality that now that I can't, or school can't just use willful defiance, at least at the elementary, middle school level, at least, um, like they used to, you used to be able to just use it all willy-nilly, then it's like, okay, well, what is in place for that teacher who maybe is struggling with building those relationships yeah. and avoiding, because then it's like, okay, fine, I can't do that, but are you offering an alternative that works? And especially when it comes to the question of 
that student being a disruption to other students learning, which we talked about um, regarding that Harvard study, which we talked about um, a few episodes back that show that that whole notion of like it's hurting the other students around isn't really um, isn't true to the extent that we believe it's true. Um, so yeah, so that's where we, we struggle now, right? To suspend or not suspend. I don't want to suspend this kid because I know the impact that it has. And also uh, we're moving away from suspensions as being our solutions. However, the not suspend part, what's there for me if I'm at a school that hasn't done restorative practices well or supported teachers and learning about it well and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think we have reason to celebrate that as a profession, we're mm -hmm. taking some bold steps to try to interrupt uh, what is often referred to as the school to prison pipeline, right. right? With the prevalence of suspension being, you know, the, the kind of um, baby version of the type of ostracizing experience that you will have as far too often a young person uh, of color a young boy of color uh, being pushed out of school, right? Um, and it's great that we're working to interrupt that. And reducing suspensions alone does not necessarily mean that the larger thing I think we are trying to work on is having schools that are safe, schools that are great places where kids want to be, where learning can really happen because the environment is conducive to that, right? Yeah, and kids feel um, welcome, like yeah. they're supposed to be there, and the folks at the school want them to be there. Right, right. And in theory, the, the, the mechanism of suspension is designed to preserve that, right? Like, right. because you've done something that interrupts that, you're going to have sort of a timeout, and then you're, we're going to welcome you back when you demonstrate that you can now comport yourself with this, you know, lovely community we've built. Now, we know it doesn't work, it doesn't work that way, right? It, but Not all the time. <laughs> like not all the time. Most of the time, it does not work that way at all. Um, but but it, there is a legitimate question in there about, like, so we can, we can just say, well, you can't suspend kids for willful defiance, and then what happens every time the kid's like, no, I'm not listening to you, yeah, exactly. right? And, and, and does that have any type of corrosive effect on school culture over time or the perceptions of teachers and families and kids, right? right? And so these are very real questions. Even if we stipulate that, like, we got to keep suspension rates lower, and that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so I actually am very curious, especially for you, Manuel, as, as a teacher, because from the administrative perspective, um, this aspect of school is, is tough because you often are seeing kids, like, in their moment of dysfunction, right? Yeah. Like, they just did something, like, really dumb. You know, <laughs> yeah. I threw something at somebody and the teacher snapped on me somehow and I cursed at the teacher and now here I am in the office after I like kicked over a trash can or whatever, right? right. And you're like, okay, I get, you know, it's not the most fun aspect of any administrator or dean's job to like sure have to deal with kids when they're in that low place. And, and frankly, then deal with teachers when teachers are stressed out and busy right. and they got 22 minutes of free time during the day and they got to use 10 of them to come talk with you about the stupid thing that happened with this kid in class, right? right. Um, so it can be a really frustrating experience for us uh, on the administrative side. And you're in the position of grappling with that, like, okay, so if, if what we used to think of as this is the consequence for willful defiance, and this is how we communicate to you, it's unacceptable. If right. that's taken away, right, 
and yet the things that were willful defiance still happen sometimes. Yeah. Um, how do you, as a teacher, and I recognize this is not your like weak spot as a teacher, right, right, right. but how do teachers f feel supported, feel like it, we can still have a classroom environment that lets them feel respected and yeah. you know supported and they can be successful in their job? Because at the end of the day, if our teachers aren't successful in their job, like well, we can all go home, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're not just babysitting, right? So right. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously it varies and it varies by, you know, grade level as well. So I'm at the high school level and as of right now, you know, at least in California, the legislation uh, batting willful defiance, um, elementary and middle. So high schools aren't there yet. And actually some people, a lot of folks out there had a problem with high school being removed from that particular piece of legislation. Um, but in any case, to answer your question, it really it really takes a village and that's where the, the support has to come from. So I'm talking not just administrators are on the same page, but having time and having, I hate to say professional development, but having professional development around alternative means of connecting with students so that you could avoid a lot of the problems that become discipline, um, discipline issues. A lot of times, and anybody that's working in the classroom or has worked in the classroom, a lot of times, um, I mean, folks know, by the time it gets to the infraction, whatever that infraction is, so much missed opportunity has happened or so much has happened leading up to that that could have prevented that infraction happening. So um, a real basic example would be, you know, whenever you hear about um, a student cursing at a teacher. Never happened to me in my 16 years, a student like cursing at me disrespectfully, like F you, Mr. Rustin. But there are teachers for whom it happens plenty. And what would be the difference there? The difference is the efforts that the teacher might have put in from day one to show that student that no matter what's going on beyond this classroom, no matter what happened before you entering this classroom, like this place here is for you, this place here embraces you, no matter what your feelings are about the content, no matter what your feelings are about anything, this place here embraces you. So one reason why I've never had a student curse me out is because way before it ever gets to that, like the students see me as somebody who's on their side, whether they like history or not, whether they like school or not. And that goes back to all the all the things that you got to do um, to establish authentic relationships with students. It's very difficult, I think, for most students, no matter their age, to look a person in the face that they care about, a teacher that they care about, knows that cares about them, and directly disobey them in a serious kind of way to where that teacher can't pull them aside and have a conversation about, you know, what's going on, this isn't you, this and that. Um, most most children, most teenagers, when they know you're on their side, they're going to be willing to work with you. And they are going to have their moments where no logic or reason, no nothing is going to work in that instance. And that doesn't have to be a suspension. I have for sure had students sit in the hallway and calm down some and let me know when it would be a good time to talk to you about this. I see you want to cool off or have students go to another teacher's room and just chill out for the period and we'll talk another time, we'll talk after the period or at lunch or after school about what's happening. That is like very much a useful tool because obviously teenagers and, and folks, you know, adolescents are dealing with a lot and you having that relationship doesn't mean they always in that moment are thinking about it, but it doesn't have to be a suspension. <laughs> yeah. If they're not thinking about it, it's because things are happening that perhaps are beyond their capacity to understand what to do in that moment. And suspending them for sure ain't helping. Having them cool out somewhere 
is like, you know, so going back to all the times I wrote that egg code on discipline referrals, like all those times were small, small things, like the phone thing, for example. Like now I could talk my way through any student handing over their phone, just off of just basic, just like, man, I did I, I asked you three or four times, man. Now I'm trying to take, now I'm starting to take a personal, like, what is it personally about about what I've asked you that is, un, you know, you could talk a student through their decision and then it's like, okay. You know, so yeah, yeah, relationships, support, PD, all that. I know it's all cliche, but all of that is needed because there are many, many, many teachers who are very much overwhelmed with their class sizes, with students coming in and out of class in terms of roster changes and all these variables. And it's hard. It's very, very, very difficult. And that's one reason why folks um, too often decide that teaching is just not going to be for them. But yeah. it's possible, though. Yeah. So there was so much in what you just said. That, uh, and I want to. Yeah, I rambled I wanna, a bit. There's a lot. No, no, no. Really good. So, first of all, we found a new topic for a future episode, folks. Mm -hmm. The face and the sound that he made when he said, I don't want to say PD. <laughs> you heard. Topic coming to you Man, on, yes. on an episode very soon is going to yeah. be professional development. So, uh, put a pin in that one. We'll, yeah. we'll come back to it. Um, but I, I also think um, so, you named this issue of relationships, right, which right. I think we should explore a little more. So, hold that one for one second. Sure. Um, you also then named the. Um, I think the like fundamental contradiction in our suspension policies that a lot of people get, but I think a lot of people, and especially uh, parents, I have found, like people who are not educators um, in general, uh, I think when they see policies like we're gonna eliminate willful defiance, and when they see what that winds up being, right, which is something that could be like, you know, um, a kid was messing with my kid, and the teacher told them to stop, and the kid was like, nah, I'm not stopping, and right. kept doing it, right? And now the teacher is communicating whether they intend to or not, right? Mm -hmm. But they're like, the tool that was available to interrupt that behavior is no longer available, right? Right. The perception that they have is there's no rules, there's no consequences, yeah. things are unsafe or chaotic, I'm taking my kid out and we're going to a charter school or whatever, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so... I think I, some of the more difficult conversations I've had about like implementing restorative practices, not that there aren't lots of challenging conversations, mm -hmm. but have been with families that are like, what's, like, what's the consequence for this kid yeah. who did something to my kid, right? And you tell me they're going to have a conversation with Mr. Rustin and it's going to be all good? Like, that's not what consequences are, yeah. right? Um, and I think underneath that very uh, justified frustration, is uh, is this logic that says that like well the the consequence that we have is suspension suspension produces some change that therefore makes the condition I was upset about less upsetting or safer right. in some way right and I think what many of us have come to realize is that actually suspension doesn't produce that yeah. right um, what it does is separate the kid who has committed some transgression right. from the rest of the kids for a while, which has a certain calming effect, potentially. Um, not always. Sometimes it can have the opposite effect. Yeah. But, um, you know, removing someone creates separation. Um, but that what we see is that the kids for whom suspension is going to be an effective behavior modification tool, like I'm not going to do this thing because I'm going to get suspended, 
are already the kids who don't do those things yeah. because they don't want to get suspended, right? The kids who do them and get suspended are not learning to not do them because they got suspended. In fact, they keep doing them and they keep getting suspended. And that becomes in some ways like this downward spiral of yeah. I'm not wanted and liked here. Therefore, the, the rules and norms of this space don't matter to me. And therefore, I might act out more and right. do more things that get me into more trouble. Right. Uh, I want to circle back to okay. a really important point you made about relationships yeah. and the importance of relationships to this whole equation about yeah. the success of our efforts to interrupt the school to prison pipeline and reduce suspensions. Tell, yeah. tell us about what you meant. Well, you know, we mentioned before the, how schools have mirrored um, changes in policing and um, mass incarceration in terms of having zero tolerance policies on campuses. And we, to use the policing mirror, again, I don't even think it's an analogy. It's too close to just being an, an analogy. Um, the area where I work, um, there are two police organizations that teachers, not teachers, that students most often interact with. So there's city police and there's county police. Now, particular students have particular um, negative experiences with both, but in talking to students about their experiences with each, there's definitely a difference in how they talk about the city police and the county police. And it's always the county police that they have the most negative experiences with. Yeah. And it turns out the county police are rotated throughout the county, or at least this was the case, maybe it's changed late, uh, more recently, but rotated throughout the county, whereas the city police are always here in the city. So there's much more familiarity with the individual officers who serve on that city police force than there are with the, the county um, sheriffs in this case. And to me, that just goes back to this idea that when you're familiar with the people that you're interacting with, um, there's a difference in how those interactions go because relationships can be built and trust can be built. That's why it's so important and why uh, activists have advocated for more police who come from the community that they're serving in and live in the community that they're serving in and are familiar with the, the members of the community and this idea about community policing. Like that's not just, just out of convenience. It's like, no, actually it makes a difference when the police reflect the community and feel that they are members of the community and that makes a difference with the interactions with those police officers and the community members that they serve. So similarly, teachers seeing students and being familiar with students and going beyond just their content and establishing relationships with the students and having that familiarity, that familiarity can help avoid a lot of the problems before they even start. Like I could see a student coming down the hall and if I'm familiar with that student, just based off of their body language, I could get a sense a lot of times. Um, if they're going through something. And having that sense of teamwork with teachers across the hall and other teachers in the building about particular students, it becomes a lot easier to help support students and avoid or address some of the behavior challenges when you can work as a team and when the students know that you're familiar, that Mr. So-and-so, Ms. So-and-so is familiar with them, and you could have that more supportive wrapping your arms around the student, figuratively speaking, or I mean, literally speaking, depending on what the student's going through, and um, support them and, and help them through whatever they're going through. A lot of times, that familiarity. That's also another reason why it's so damaging when you have schools that have just rotating staffs that have a tremendous amount of teacher turnover and the teachers there never get a chance or never, you know, the, the situation, the, the settings in the uh, particular schoolhouse are never to the point where a teacher could really get a firm hold and firm grasp of who the students are, 
what the community is about and establish themselves. So when students are going to a school where every day is like a different, you know, I got this long-term sub and I got that long-term sub, like you also see more behavior challenges because those relationships are totally not there. So, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, what you're naming there both is interesting, the kind of analogy you're making between police and, and teachers there. And I think actually it makes me think about the, in the best cases, mm. kids feel very differently and communities feel very differently about teachers and about school uh, than they do about the police because of a, fu a fundamental distinction, right? And I think that a lot of the work that gets pushed around restorative justice mm -hmm. is, is at its core about spreading that shift, right? right? Which is the kind of nature of policing is, um, you know, let's identify rules that are broken Let's identify who broke the rule and then let's punish the person yeah. who broke the rule. Right. And the, and the kind of paradigm shift of a restorative approach is, uh, you know, what uh, harm was caused. Right. To whom and, and by whom or with whom and what might we do to repair the harm. Right. And then how can we behave differently moving forward so that the harm is not repeated. Right. Yeah. And that engaging in that process is actually a learning experience and hopefully a healing experience for both parties engaged or if there's multiple parties yeah. for all parties engaged. Right. Um, and so I think that there's just like this very stark contrast between like the way of policing and the way of relationship driven restorative practice in schools. Yeah. Yeah. Man. All right. So. Um to suspend or not to suspend, Jeff? We gotta answer the question. Well, I would Thank say you. mostly not to suspend, but very important that we do hold on to the ability to suspend because we do not live in a, in a restorative utopia yet. We don't. Uh, so, um, so yeah, but I would say glad we're dramatically reducing those suspensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big time. And shout out to all the other organizations out there working hard to, to make these changes and to push for these changes. Now, of course, there's plenty of data out there, a lot of really important reports like the Get Out report, which looked at uh, suspensions and expulsions in San Diego, uh, for example. We're going to link a whole bunch of them on our website. All right. So this conversation, we, we wanted to sort of explore the history and sort of where we're at. But if you're looking for the, the, the hardcore chunky data and all the work that folks are doing, we're going to list as much of that as we can on our website. So that's AOTA show. Com. And of course, we've we've uh, referenced this uh, topic in different ways um, through a, a whole number of episodes. So if I have time, I will also um, put links on that on our episode page um, back to those episodes um, where we talked about preschoolers being suspended and that six year old girl who was arrested and and the other times where we've referenced these uh, this particular topic. So AOTA show. Dot com. You'll see a handy little menu there for our different seasons. And this is, of course, is season three and uh, on the page for today's episode, episode five. I'll list um, all those links so you could um, peruse and look at the data for yourself. But if you're watching this on YouTube or, or Facebook, please uh, drop a comment below. Let us know um, your thoughts about this this uh, discussion about suspensions and the, the challenges with um, being a classroom teacher and perhaps not having the same tools and mechanisms that you used to have for uh, so-called dealing with unruly students, uh, let us know. And if you're listening to, to the audio podcast, um, next time you find yourself at a computer or staring at your mobile device, um, 
open up that internet browser and get, go to aotashow.com, which will help you get to our YouTube channel so you, can, so you can subscribe, but also has, of course, links and all kinds of extras that don't make it to the audio podcast. All right, folks. That was a chunky one, Jeff. That was, that was, a, chunk. That was a lot of ch- chunky. Is this like a peanut butter situation? Chunky and smooth. Yeah, I'm a I'm a creamy <laughs> peanut butter type we got chunky, of guy. Chunky data, chunky seminars. All that. Yes. All that. All, All right, right, folks. So um, next up is class dismissed, where we uh, shout out folks doing great work in education. So um, we'll hit you with that coming up. All right, now it's time for Class Dismissed. And this is a moment in our episodes where we like to shout out folks doing great work in education. And for today's Class Dismissed, we definitely want to shout out all of you educators who, if you're listening to this on the um, weekend that this episode dropped, you just hopefully enjoyed a very restful Thanksgiving break. And you are headed back into your classroom for two or three weeks of, of very intense holiday season teaching with kids bouncing off yeah. the wall and the, the sprint at the end of the marathon the sprints, trying to get your it's, last units finished it's important but it burns man finals <laughs> and all that stuff yeah. and um yeah and, and and the holidays bring with them all sorts of extra challenges as educators both personal and uh, you know a lot of students holiday time isn't necessarily the um happy time that our national narrative uh paints it as and you know that as an educator and you know that teaching during the holidays um can be quite quite difficult both with dealing with the emotions of the holidays but also of course the semesters wrapping up in many cases and finals week and all that stuff so shout out to you because you're headed back into the classroom to finish 2019 strong and do the best you can to support students as they approach the end of perhaps semester depending on your uh, school system. So shout out to you educators. I hope we both hope you had a very restful um, Thanksgiving break and we also hope that you have an excellent December and an excellent end to 2019. Anything to add to that Jeff? Yeah so I think I just want to build on what you said about okay. the holidays sometimes being a really tricky time for yeah. certain students and I think there are people in schools who are like formally identified as supporting students with you know, some of the emotional challenges that come with that time, counselors and psychologists. And those folks are really important. So I want to include them in this. Um, But there's also lots of informal folks, right? Um, There's there's just like your favorite teacher who you go lean on because you're having a hard time. There's the campus aides. There's the secretary in the main office, right? And, um, you know, there's the nurse. There's all these, this kind of network of informal folks who become this support structure for kids during these difficult times when they're just mad or they're just upset or they're yeah. just sad or frustrated and, um, and where maybe the idea of two weeks or three weeks of winter break is not a lovely vacation, but is a time of being deep yeah. in some, you know, triggering or traumatizing situations. And so... Um, you know, much, much love to this extended network of educators out there doing the work of helping to support our young people through what is sometimes a, a difficult part of the year. Yes, definitely. Very well said. All right, folks. If you haven't already, you have another opportunity right now to hit that subscribe button, hit that follow, rate us, review us. All that stuff makes a big difference when it comes to those algorithms. We very much appreciate you, and uh, we will see you next time.